The following is my conversation with Dr. Jason Rolf. He is the co-founder and CTO of Variational AI. Variational AI uses machine learning to rapidly generate novel compounds that are optimized to increase the clinical probability of success. Jason has previously worked as a machine learning researcher at the world's first quantum computing company, D-Wave. Some of you may remember that Jody Rose, D-Wave's founder, was our first ever guest on this show. Jason has a PhD in computational and neural systems and has done research at many of the world's top universities, including MIT, California Institute of Technology, and New York University. In our conversation, we talk in detail about how AI works, starting with a non-technical overview and then diving deeper into the complexity of the systems they use for drug discovery. We then talk about the kinds of innovations AI will soon bring and the kinds of job disruptions that will follow alongside them. Jason talks about the hard skills and aptitudes we must develop to thrive alongside AI, as well as practical recommendations for where and how to best learn machine learning concepts. I found Jason to be an extremely generous person with a spark for science and learning like nothing I've ever seen before. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I do. So why don't you begin with telling us a little bit of the overview of your career to date and the founding journey at Variational AI. Okay. Um, I've been studying machine learning for over 15 years, uh, specifically generative learning. Um, I actually started my graduate career in experimental neuroscience, which didn't really agree with me. I didn't enjoy all of the lab work, uh, specifically working with rats. Um, so I transitioned to um, theoretical neuroscience, uh, spent most of my PhD looking at biologically plausible machine learning algorithms, trying to identify machine learning algorithms that are consistent with the neural architecture of the brain. Um, I did my postdoc with Jan LeCun, who's well-known at this point in the machine learning community, um, and started working on, I guess, deep learning sorts of things at that point. Uh, after my postdoc, I spent maybe seven years at D-Wave Systems, where I progressed to principal machine learning researcher, uh, worked on uh, algorithms that were consistent with the architecture of a particular sort of quantum computer, a uh, adiabatic quantum annealer, um, as well as so that the algorithms that I developed there um, used uh, variational autoencoders with uh, they were designed so that the prior of that variational autoencoder was consistent with the computation performed by the quantum computer. So that developed uh, an, a potential application for the quantum computer and then uh, transitioned to trying to develop um, practical applications of that algorithm. So what can you do with a power, powerful variational autoencoder that would actually be of commercial or industrial interest? Um, what were some of the, the applications that you came up with? Um, I worked on a number of applications within uh, bioinformatics, cheminformatics, uh, industrial process control. We uh, attempted to develop a number of different um, industrial applications, which we were working towards selling, but eventually D-Wave decided that it didn't want to have a machine learning division anymore needed to focus entirely on developing the, the quantum computing hardware. So it disbanded the entire machine learning group, yeah. uh, at which point I and a number of my former colleagues came together to form our current startup, Variational AI, where we're attempting to uh, use generative machine learning in order to accelerate small molecule pharmaceutical development. Wow, that's fascinating. It's interesting you mentioned D-Wave because one of our first podcast guests was Jordy Rose. Mm -hmm. uh, founder so it's, it's it's interesting it's kind of a small tech space in Vancouver everything kind of overlaps interesting yep Jordy was my original supervisor at D-Wave so wow so why don't you tell us a little bit more about how you use AI um some of our listeners aren't technical at all so maybe kind of an overview um not super technical and then maybe you can dive a little bit deeper okay um we are absolutely a machine learning first approach to drug discovery um Generative machine learning, as I assume most people are aware at this point, but I'll try to give a very sort of uh, high level technical summary. The basic idea is that you want to model the probability distribution of some domain. So the, the sort of domains where this is most um, well known at this point are 
in the language domain with large language models where you're trying to learn what is the effectively statistical structure of natural language. Um, one of the defining aspects of a generative model is you're able to draw samples from that distribution. So drawing a sample from the probability distribution of natural language would correspond to a well-formed syntactically and semantically sentence in English or whatever language you've trained on. Um, this is also done in commonly in the visual domain. And in that case, when you draw a sample, you get a photorealistic image. We are applying generative modeling over the space of drug-like molecules. This is qualitatively different than either vision or uh, natural language because of the, you can call it the topology of the objects that you're generating. In images, you're generally uh, producing a grid of pixels. One pixel, you need to set the RGB values of each pixel in a, a square grid, and that gives you your image. For text, it will be a sequence of, usually they're word part tokens. People generally don't use character level language models. They don't use word level language models. They divide things into word parts, which are somewhere between characters and full words. But you need to produce a sequence of these tokens, which then come together to form a series of words and a series of sentences and eventually paragraphs and the full answers that you're getting out of ChatGPT. Um, small molecules, in contrast, don't fall on one of these sorts of regular grids, either linear or square. Um, they can have, they, they are, are best understood as graphs where the nodes are atoms and the edges are the bonds between the atoms. Um, the topology of these graphs, they can be uh, sequences, linear sequences, they can be trees, they can contain loops, they can have interconnected loops, and you need to build a system that is able to effectively work with that uh, topology, whereas, you know, any sort of convolutional architecture, traditional convolutional architectures are designed specifically for square grids or linear sequences. So that requires uh, a different approach. To take a brief tangent, I'm, I'm curious like what your thoughts are on technologies like ChatGPT. Um, some people are like, there was, a, uh, I think an employee at Google or, or DeepMind who was thinking it's completely conscious. And like, like what, what do you, what's your take on like the philosophy behind it? Like, do you think it, it reveals something fundamental about about the human mind or do you think it's just a cool kind of toy party trick type thing? So my feelings on this are informed by the years that I spent thinking about uh, the human brain and its relationship to machine learning algorithms. I, I think that consciousness is mostly a, a distraction, um, that there is no deep problem of consciousness. Um, Consciousness is as consciousness does. Something that appears to be conscious actually is conscious. What we perceive as our qualitative experience is the nature of a system that is doing the sort of information processing necessary to appear intelligent within the world. Any system that appears intelligent is actually consciousness. It is actually conscious. There's no magic to the neurons in our brain as opposed to the transistors in a computer, there's no, you know, special quantum effect that then enables connection to some sort of immaterial soul. And philosophers frequently take this in, I think, um, rather surprising directions, directions that are not consistent with uh, a reductionistic science. Um, and I firmly believe in the enlightenment program of understanding the world by decomposing it into its parts. Um, but ChatGPT is, as far as I understand it, not yet sufficiently sophisticated and complicated to rise to the level of human intelligence. And thus, I don't think it possesses something like human consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not an expert with ChatGPT, but my understanding is that, for instance, it doesn't necessarily preserve um, state as well as a human would over the course of long blocks of text. Mm -hmm. So the, what gives us the, the manifestation of a consistent mental state in us 
is the, the, the expression of that is um, our ability to maintain a consistent line of thought and a consistent perspective throughout uh, a long interaction. And to the extent that that isn't present, you have something that's more like the consciousness of goldfish rather than the consciousness of a human. Mm. But I'd be happy to believe that ChatGPT has consciousness comparable to a goldfish. That's, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, it's, it's interesting. Like, if, if we're comparing it to humans, obviously it's not quite there. But if you compare it to like a horse or something like that, it starts to get a little bit closer. That's, yep. that's fascinating. Um, yeah, the other thing I was going to ask is how has technologies like the large language models and the diffusion models for images, has that changed? Because you get you founded um, Variational AI in 2019, kind of before all this was, all the hype has been around AI in the public media. Has has that shifted the way you guys work at all? Uh, we change our algorithms and evolve our alg algorithms as new approaches become available that appear to be relevant to what we're doing. Um, we have not been significantly influenced by large language models, although you know transformers are a fantastic and effective architecture, which everyone should be conversant in. Um, but large language models in particular are trained on large amounts of natural language, whereas we're particularly, we are specifically interested in small molecules, what makes a molecule synthesizable, what makes it stable, what makes it uh, an effective inhibitor of various proteins within the body. And that is dealt with in the corpus of language on which large language models are trained in only the most tangential and indirect way. Mm -hmm. There are, of course, some chemistry texts in those corpuses. If you ask a large language model a question about chemistry, it will construct an answer for you. But I have seen no evidence that it has knowledge comparable to a medicinal chemist who has spent years explicitly studying this. Um, until it's better than a medicinal chemist, you're better off actually hiring a medicinal chemist. The economics of drug discovery are rather different from the applications where a large language model would be effective presently. Right now, those applications are ones where there are a large amount of human interaction is required, uh, which doesn't need to be especially precise because the it's not essential that those interactions be exactly correct, uh, and they're not depending upon very sophisticated knowledge and reasoning processes. So, you know, you could use a large language model for customer support applications. Um, in contrast, for small molecule drug discovery, the cost of doing the wet lab experimental work to confirm any hypothesis is exorbitant. Um, to synthesize and test a novel small molecule is on the order of thousands of dollars, and you're going to have to go through thousands of different molecules as you progress to a final drug candidate that can be entered into clinical trials. So you're not trying to save pennies on the selection of the compounds. You want to invest as many resources as possible into as quickly and efficiently as possible converging onto a successful drug candidate. The costs of the experimental work to verify that, again, are overwhelming. And then when you enter into clinical trials, that's where the real expense comes in. And you want to be extremely confident in your candidate as you enter clinical trials, because those cost, I, I would guess, on the order of hundreds of millions of dollars to run a full clinical trial full through phase three, we work on much earlier stages than that. And I handle the machine learning side rather than the business side. So I couldn't quote you the exact cost of a clinical trial, but they're, they're overwhelming. Wow. What do you, what do you see as like the timeline and like the, the rate of progression over the next like 10 to 20 years? Like how do you see AI working um, in the medical field in the next, the next little while? I will um, agree with many other people in the field that I would not want to be a uh, radiologist in um, training right now. Uh, I think the, the career of radiologists will, there will still be radiologists 10 years from now, most likely, but a large fraction of their workload I expect will begin to be taken over by automated systems due to regulatory concerns, due to politics, due to psychology. It will take time before people become comfortable with a machine delivering a final uh, diagnosis. 
Um, you know, there's also the question of who is legally liable when inevitably mistakes are made. But my understanding is that there are already cases where there is at least evidence that the machines are, the, the ML algorithms are at least as at least as accurate as the average human. Um, so I expect in diagnosis, especially, uh, especially in the more image-based diagnosis domains where you're looking at a CT scan, for instance, um, I expect there will be a, a massive impact of machine learning algorithms within the coming decades. And on that topic, what other jobs do you think, like, like if you had to put into a few different categories, like you're definitely safe in one category, you're definitely screwed in the other category. And then there's kind of like the middle ones. Are there, are there some jobs that are like, you should definitely be like, because most of our, our audience is university students kind of trying to figure out where where to go with our career paths? Like, is there anyone where it's like, you should definitely turn around and try something else? Um, or and are there some, like you're definitely going down the right path? It's an interesting question. And I want to concede my own fallibility in the predictions that I'm about to make. Had you asked me five years ago, if large language models would be able to write uh, correct and effective code in the near future, I would have said no. I continue to find their efficacy in producing computer code surprising, given how difficult it is to specify what you want a piece of code to do unambiguously to a human. You know, just describing the the objective for a, a coding project precisely so that it is impossible to interpret incorrectly is challenging. It requires, in some sense, the code is its own documentation at the, the most precise level. Um, there's also huge amounts of sensitive interdependence within a piece of code. You know, the, the set, the distribution of correct programs given a program specification is ridiculously multimodal. You can arbitrarily change a variable name. And so long as you consistently change that variable name everywhere else, it's perfectly acceptable. Um, you can implement your loop with iteration versus recursion. And either implementation decision is fine so long as you do it consistently. Um, these sorts of, th that corresponds to long-term dependencies, which if you go back before transformers to recurrent neural networks, those sorts of long-term dependencies were uh, a real difficulty, a real challenge to get networks to model and respect. So... I would not have predicted the success of large language models in becoming uh, coding assistants. And, you know, I don't, I don't think anyone expects that programmers will be replaced entirely. If you look at the transition from early programmers writing uh, assembler or machine code to the early compiled languages to something like Python with the massive libraries and frameworks that are available to it, the, the task of programming today would be unrecognizable to someone who learned how to program in the 60s. So there's been massive evolution there, and yet there are more programmers than ever. I'm sure that large language models will change the way in which people program. Probably there will still be programmers. Will there be as many? Will this decrease the need for programmers because each programmer becomes so much more efficient? Or will it just mean that there are new domains in which it is now economical to invest in writing code and trying to automate processes. That's uh, a question that requires uh, a fairly detailed knowledge of the domains in which these things would be applied. And, you know, like you, you look at the evolution of uh, social networks, which have created new sorts of human interactions with computers, opened up new economic domains in which programming would be useful. I, I think it's difficult to predict where that's going to go. Um, there are certainly examples from history in which the evolution of a new technology has completely gutted an industry. You know, the number of farmers today, the percentage of humanity engaged in agriculture today versus before the industrial revolution went from like 80% to under like, to like 5%. It, it was a, a massive change. Um, the number of people in the industrialized world engaged in manufacturing has decreased substantially 
over time and people have moved into a more services-based economy. So there's certainly a risk there. Um, which particular industries are, are going to be upended? I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> is there a kind of a roadmap for anyone? Um, like some people say depth is important, like have a very deep understanding. And then even if you're not going to be writing the code, you'll understand how the entire system works and then you can implement the new, um, the new systems. Like, is there any general advice that you have when kind of navigating a future with lots of automation coming um, for students? Thinking about the way in which economies and jobs have evolved over the preceding decades. Um, I think maybe the, or my personal philosophy, my, my personal approach is uh, one of flexibility. That you can't assume that the particular job that you are taking immediately out of graduation will exist 20 years from now, let alone 50 years from now. You know, you, you, you probably expect after graduating from undergrad to have a career that's going to span roughly half a century. I think it's unlikely that any job that you pick is going to exist in an unchanged form over that period of time. I think that people need to expect that they will be forced to evolve, if not entirely reinvent their professional lives over the course of those 50 years, which is scary. Uh, but if you know that going in, it affects your choices, it enables you to, to choose more rationally, um, and it perhaps reduces the psychological shock when things do change. What do you think are like the qualities, you mentioned flexibility, that the people who are gonna succeed the most um, alongside AI in the future? I think you need to always be learning. I think that you cannot assume that the skills that you have developed are sufficient to support you into the future and you need to constantly be advancing your skill set, adapting to new technologies as they arise, um, building new skills in adjacent uh, areas of knowledge and industries in order to maintain that flexibility. To talk about graduated 20 years ago uh, in computer science and was an expert in Java writing the sort of um, backends for web pages that existed 20 years ago. That job doesn't exist anymore. The, the world has changed even since then. Well, wow. do you have any specific advice when hiring? Um software engineers and um, sorry, not for hiring, but like for us, when we're applying for jobs, um, things like software engineers and data scientists, uh, like what, what do you think the best approach if we want to get hired at, at the top companies is? I don't think I have a good answer for that in that I'm usually looking for people with research experience because what we do is fundamentally research. And that is a extremely difficult skill set to develop over the course of four years of undergraduate education. Um, a PhD is basically a five or so year apprenticeship program in which you get thrown into the deep end and need to figure out how to uh, effectively operate within um, bleeding edge, a bleeding edge domain um, that can't be taught through coursework. A PhD, you're, you're paid very little uh, and the, the benefit for that is you are allowed to work in a domain where you're out of your depth and develop those skills, which then presumably serve you well in whatever you're going to do next. Um, so I, I'm generally looking for people who have developed that skill set, which again, uh, is very difficult to develop as an undergraduate. The other skill set, which I'm skeptical of the ability of an undergraduate education to provide is the ability to work on uh, large industrial code bases. So there's a real difference between writing a 500 line piece of code and writing a 50,000 or 500,000 line piece of code. Especially, I, I mean, at that point, the code is so large that you cannot hold the entire thing in your head at once. And the sorts of uh, abstraction techniques 
and architectural techniques that you need to use in order to make the code, keep the code understandable and maintainable. They're just not necessary when you're working on a smaller scale piece of code. And that is, um, it's a skill set which I think would be difficult to develop unless you were working on those larger pieces of code. How do you recommend we develop that? Um, is there any way to do it whilst still in undergrad? Um, I can't really speak from experience to that. I would guess that if you were able to contribute to, for instance, uh, a large open source coding project, a large open source coding project is an instance of that sort of large software infrastructure where you need to be, you need to maintain very careful abstraction barriers. You need to have very clear interfaces. You need to have very uh, aggressive unit testing in order to make sure that each piece works because you can't just test the entire, entire finished product and be confident that you're going to have sufficient coverage. Um, all of this becomes much worse in the context of machine learning because writing unit tests for machine learning is often all but impossible. You, you don't know how each individual piece is going to work. You don't even necessarily know how the entire thing should work if you're operating in a research context where you're trying to develop something new. You have a, a vision of how you want the overall system, how the overall system should work. But even if you've correctly written each component of it, if your uh, hypotheses about the necessary architecture were incorrect, the code can be perfect, can be exactly realize what you specified and yet not achieve the desired goal. Um, that sort of drew that out in the tangent. Um, but yeah, experience with large code bases and working in a team, the more you can gain in that, I would think the more hireable you would be. Going back and kind of looking back over your career as a whole, like how did you, do you have any advice for figuring out what your passions are and and like like do you do you have a framework for making your decisions on what opportunities to take? I think a lot of young people struggle a lot with deciding should I do this or do that or how do you approach those kinds of problems? I think it's very difficult to know what a particular career will be like if you haven't actually sampled it. Uh, the day to day work of a job is often not what you'd imagine it to be from the outside. There are tedious aspects which aren't highlighted in the promotional materials, for instance. Um, so if you can get an internship or some other sort of hands-on experience with the actual career that you're considering pursuing, I think that that is invaluable to making an informed decision about what you want to do. Um, I think universities are really terrible at facilitating this. They have a uh, very inwardly focused um, and professors know what it's like to do academic research in a domain, but the typical professor has never worked in industry. That's not the career path. You go undergraduate degree, PhD, postdoc, depending upon the domain, you know, in biology, often many postdocs, and then you try to get a tenure track professorial position. At no point do you actually go out and see what the industrial side of that domain is like, which puts you in a very weak position for advising and educating students to enter the industrial world, which isn't to say that you aren't getting a world-class theoretical education, uh, but in terms of career advice regarding what job would be suited to your personal dispositions and capabilities, that's not necessarily the sort of thing that your professors have a lot of personal experience with, that they'd be able to give you um, nuanced advice. Um, informational interviews, I think, can be very effective. Contact someone who is in the domain and basically ask to clear up front. You're not asking for a job. You just want to pick your brain. And it's often very flattering to be asked what you think about an industry. Uh, and people will often be open to that. I'm curious, like, what is your kind of, how, how would you divide your um, energy at variational AI? Like if you say like 30% is this, 20% is this, how, like, what, what is like a, an average week look like in, in your life? So at this point, I'm uh, a chief technology officer, which 
means that I am very responsible for many of the, the business sides of things or interfacing the business considerations with the technical considerations. So the part of the, my job that I enjoy most is trying often unsuccessfully to stay abreast of the literature. Um, at this point, I read as much in chem informatics as I do in machine learning, which I think is not as um, rich technically. I, I don't enjoy reading those papers as much, but I need to know the domain, uh, the application domain, as well as the fundamental technologies that we're applying. If you don't know both, you're going to devise a, a, a rather inefficient and suboptimal system. Um, I spend a lot of time speaking with the people who are actually doing technical work, um, trying to work with them in order to help them refine their approaches, provide uh, a sanity check on what they're doing, provide uh, an outside second perspective, um, coordinate all of their efforts in order to make sure we're all pulling towards uh, an efficient common goal. But I also spend a lot of time trying to raise money from venture capitalists and interfacing with our customers um, and doing the work that no one else has yet done in order to support a customer deliverable. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of business side work as well. What about on on like the data science side? Like what would a data science person, like is, is a lot of their work um, like cleaning the data or what is like the breakdown there? What do you say? We do at this point have one person who's effectively a data scientist. Most of the people on our team are either machine learning researchers or computational chemists or chem informaticians. There's, there is a lot of data cleaning work required in the uh, pharmacology domain, the data sets that exist um, or the databases that exist are often rather uh, error prone. So the ability to, it, to the extent that you can identify erroneous data points or even correct them based upon the original source data from which the database was aggregated, this is invaluable. Um, obviously any sort of manual correction effort is extremely labor intensive and in the limit would imply the entire reconstruction of the database, at which point, you know, you should have just built it yourself from scratch, but that is a enormous undertaking and not feasible. Um, so yes, we do do some data science work, but um, most of our work is more on the machine learning research side or using chem informatics and computational chemistry techniques to construct additional data. We talked a bit about um, your the future of um, AI and medicine the next little while. What do you see as like the major progressions? Like if like if if we look back, we look at the industrial revolution and things like that. What are those next few steps to come? Like in your mind, just like I know it's hard to make predictions, but just um, what does your instinct tell you? If you're asking about medicine as a whole, I think that there are multiple different subdomains within medicine. And the application of machine learning to those is going to be largely independent. So we spoke a bit about uh, imaging diagnostics. And I think there's a reasonably straightforward pathway for applying the sort of techniques that uh, have been developed in the academic machine learning community to those domains. Uh, a large part of the challenge there is almost regulatory. The data sets tend to be extremely inaccessible. They're siloed within individual uh, medical providing institutions, like an individual hospital. They're subject to extremely strict privacy laws, which makes it difficult to uh, access that data, let alone aggregate it into a unified data set on which you could train a large model, like the sort that are trained on, I mean, ImageNet is not the training set at this point. There are much larger image data sets, but um, that's what you would want. And then you'd want to apply those sorts of architectures. But the again, the challenge there is not so much on the ML technical side, it's domain-related uh, regulatory and logistical issues. Um, you might imagine applying machine learning to other diagnostic tasks that are not as imaging-based. You know, you have the full health record of a patient 
and you want to see if there's uh, an underlying diagnosis that previous clinicians have missed. That would be a natural sort of task. Um, a lot of that data is in freeform text, which large language models are uh, a natural tool to apply, but it's also very multimodal in that you're going to have both the freeform text and lab results, which will be you know tabular numeric data, as well as imaging-based results from MRIs or CT scans or whatever other diagnostics a person has had. That's another interesting domain uh, in which I think there's been some progress. Um, there are efforts to roboticize surgery. Um, you know, forget the name of some uh, Renaissance Italian name. There's a, a robot in commercial use today for surgery. Uh, so you can imagine that will certainly progress um, as time goes on. Um, and there's obviously a huge opportunity to create new therapeutics, both small molecule pharmaceuticals, uh, as well as antibodies and other diverse approaches of vaccines, obviously, um, you know, especially like an mRNA vaccine, it's easy to imagine how you could apply machine learning to selecting the sequence of the, the base pairs within the mRNA that's being delivered. On a bigger scope outside of just medicine, like do you have timelines in your head for things like AGI or like what, what do you see as like the biggest like societal shifting um, implications of AI in the next 20 to 100 years? Well, I think AGI, if and when it is developed, will change everything. Uh, that will be a, a sea change, the effects of which I think are very difficult to predict from the outside. Um, but if you have machines that are, once we have machines that are almost as intelligent as humans, it's easy to imagine how they would quickly progress to things that are more intelligent than humans, at which point I think the real question becomes, what do you mean by human? If we're interested in human culture and the evolution and continuity of human culture, I see no reason why that couldn't be continued on a silicon substrate. You know, humanity cycles every 80 years or so. There, we don't perpetuate ourselves as individuals. We perpetuate ourselves through our children and future generations. What does it mean to have a child? People have biological children. People adopt children. Um, I would guess that at some point there will be a generation of children that are not carbon-based. Wow. How do you think about that as a scientist and as a human? Is there a distinction between the two? Like as you, is there a part of you, like I've, I've heard, heard scientists say, I think this with my brain, and I think this with my heart. Is there kind of a distinction for you or do you, do you kind of um, have a unified perspective on it? I think my brain and heart are reasonably well aligned in this. That's interesting. Do you have any um, general advice for young people um, throughout university on career or just life in general, ways to spend our time or or to look back and, and, and feel fulfilled after um, our undergrad and our life in general? I'm not sure if I would trust my advice in this regard. I think that the particular questions that you've already asked were, um, were good ones. Um, how do you select a career? How do you maintain yourself within that career as the career changes underneath you? Um, I there's you can never be too informed about the decisions that you're going to make. It's very easy to not be informed, especially during your undergraduate education, because you are ensconced within this um, protective institution that constructs uh, a culture which is not the same as the culture that you'll be facing after you enter the working world. Uh, and you're being forced to make decisions now, not knowing the, the world in which those decisions are going to play out. So the more you can know about the world that you're going to be facing after you graduate, the more responsive you can make your present decisions. Um, I've always found it surprising how common the advice is given to undergraduates to follow their present passions, that a university education should be for its own stake. It's not technical training for uh, future employment. 
you're going to spend again, you know, roughly 50 years in your chosen profession. Uh, I mean, unless artificial intelligence upends everything and human labor is made irrelevant and everything is replaced with universal basic income and we all sit on our couches watching television while the robots do all of the real work. But assuming that isn't going to happen or preparing for the time until it does happen, you're investing four years of opportunity cost that you could have been doing something else as well as a non-trivial amount of actual money into making yourself uh, best able to follow the course that you will want to after you graduate. Um, and I, I find it almost disingenuous when a 18 year old is advised to, I'm probably gonna say something that's not entirely political, politically correct here, but major in comparative literature or major in philosophy because they find it intrinsically interesting. Like there certainly is something to say for the life of the mind and, you know, um, furnishing your mental space so as to be rich and interesting to enable you to lead a, a full and fulfilling life. But I don't think it is wise to do that at the expense of preparing yourself for a rich and fulfilling career. One of the questions I like to ask um, all our guests is looking at your life, is there any like underpinning habits, like daily practices? It could be as simple as taking a cold shower or things like that, that you just think make like a huge difference in your life. Like obviously there's so many habits we do. We have to-do lists, we have all these things, but are there any specific things that you think make like a massive impact on your life that you do? Um, it's difficult. The, the rest of your life becomes much more challenging if you are not in reasonable physical condition. So daily exercise and maintaining a healthy diet, getting enough sleep. I think that these are all very wise things. Um, it's easier to skimp on those things when you're younger, your body is just more resilient. Um, but developing the habit of exercising every day, eating well, sleeping reasonably well, I think that that serve, will serve you well into your future. Okay, so last two questions. Uh, the first is, are there any tools that you use, whether it's different apps or um, Chrome extensions and things like that that, that have been um, tremendously useful for you as well, just, just fun things that you think we might um, might be interested in? Uh, my favorite thing on the internet is Google Scholar. Google Scholar. The uh, ability to chain back and forth through uh, references, especially being able to see the um, article, the, the papers that cite a paper rather than the papers that are cited by a paper is incredibly useful. Um, machine learning, the machine learning literature has exploded over the course of the past 20 years. Uh, if you go back to the early days of NeurIPS, back when it was just NIPS, everyone knew everyone. You could see all of the posters in a poster session. Uh, the field was relatively unified and everyone was sort of a, a Renaissance person. Everyone had some sense of all of the major work that was going on. Today, that is impossible. There's just too many subfields each of which is too deep and rich and extensive for any one person to follow everything. Um, it's very important to focus your efforts on the, the most impactful pieces of knowledge. Most papers do not stand the test of time. Most papers are irrelevant. There is a small fraction of the papers produced in any given year that end up being impactful. Um, so, Focusing your efforts on those impactful elements, I think, is very useful. This is probably less relevant speaking to undergraduates rather than graduate students. You're probably spending less of your time reading papers. Uh, but, you know, there are 50 papers from the past 20 years that have had a massive impact. And reading that particular set of 50 papers, that's giving you uh, a good foundation for moving forward. Is there if a way to rent papers, it would be worthless. <laughs> Is, is there a way to easily vet those papers and find the, the most effective ones to read? It's most obvious the older they are because they'll be the ones that have 10,000 citations. I see. And then the last question is, um, it can be 
papers, it can be books, it can be movies, just any resources that you think we should definitely check out um, that are either interesting or beneficial or um, websites, courses, anything like that. Um, there, so again, I think Google Scholar is an incredible resource. Um, there was one textbook that I used early in my machine learning education, which I found um, gave me a very interesting perspective. Um, I'm not remembering the title, but can you give me a second and I'll pull it out? Can you, you put a gap in this podcast? Of course. I'll be back in one minute. David Mackay's Information Theory, Inference, and Learning Algorithms. Perfect. Um, it's definitely not deep learning. This is, uh, it's an information theory perspective on machine learning, which I thought was fascinating at the time. I continue to think is very interesting. Uh, it's the sort of thing that would build your uh, wider perspective and your intuition rather than giving you particular tools and techniques that you'd want to apply today. Awesome. Is there anything else um, that you think we should point our attention towards? There really don't exist great textbooks for more modern machine learning topics. I think the field just moves too quickly. So, you know, Ian Goodfellow wrote a textbook on deep learning. Um, I think it's getting almost back 10 years now, which at the time was impactful and heavily cited, but the world has just moved on since then. It, it's, it's very difficult. By the time you finish writing a textbook, there is already some new hotness that everyone is devoting all of their attention to. Um, but again, there are these seminal papers which have an outsized impact, which are heavily cited, uh, and which I think it really is uh, advantageous to read. And in, in terms of learning, um, are there like courses or, or resources where you think um, we, we should spend our efforts? Like there's, there's a whole host of online courses, but are there any that you've found um, really effective? No, uh, mm -hmm. I wouldn't put much stock in any like Coursera course. Um, there are plenty of good free resources where people at, you know, well-known people at well-known schools just put their lecture materials online. If you can find those, those are probably fine. Uh, it, I've more often seen slides from people's lectures as opposed to like a full video course, um, which is unfortunate because that would be a wonderful resource to share with the world. But the, there was a initial spurt of a full open publication of um, course materials uh, like MIT OpenCourseWare. But if you look at those, my impression is that almost all of those video lectures that they posted online, again, those are getting on towards like 10 years old now. They, they haven't been adding new ones. Instead, it's all locked behind paywalls in Coursera. Um, and those courses, I haven't really explored them much myself, they, they seem like they are structured differently. They're broken into like little five minute chunks with quizzes after each five minute chunk. It, it's, it's not designed for someone who's trying to move to the top of the field. Maybe, I, I don't have enough experience. I should probably not besmirch something for which I don't have uh, significant personal knowledge. And then how about any like inspirational people um, to check out? Like um, Lex Fridman from MIT, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of his podcast and he, He's uh, he has some super cool stuff related to AI. Is there any people that you look up to in the field or whose work you, you find really interesting? I mean, I, I certainly have my set of intellectual heroes in the field. You know, Jeff Hinton certainly is at the top of anyone's list in terms of most impactful researchers in machine learning. There's lots of people who have made one or two significant contributions and Jeff has hit the ball out of the park a number of times, which is astounding over the course of his very long career. Um, but uh, in terms of like podcasts in machine learning that I personally find useful, um, I think that if you're going to invest your time trying to learn from uh, material, the, the most valuable material is that which has been 
very uh, heavily edited in order to make it as uh, rich and clear and accessible as possible. Um, that takes a huge amount of effort and most of the material that's available out there in the form of something like podcasts doesn't have that level of attention and care invested into it. Um, textbooks, in the cases where they are timely, uh, I think are an invaluable resource for learning because the that level of attention and effort has been put into digesting the material to the point where it can be absorbed as efficiently as possible. Um, Papers are usually not nearly as good in terms of trying to organize things so that they can be learned efficiently. Uh, particularly within any academic domain, there is a very uh, large base of knowledge that's assumed by any author. And if you are first coming into the domain, the you will likely find the papers to be largely unintelligible. Um, when I first started in neuroscience in the beginning of my PhD, reading papers about the hippocampus, there are just all of these different cell types, all of these different uh, regions within the brain, and any paper is going to assume that you basically know them. For the first couple months that I was reading papers, I understood maybe half of what I was reading, and eventually the you start to pick up enough that the pieces click together and you have uh, a, a richer, more useful learn reading experience. A textbook is designed so that doesn't happen. A textbook sequences everything so that by the time you get to chapter five, you have the information necessary to understand it. Hmm. Well, thank you very much for taking the time with me today. I really appreciate it. And uh, have a wonderful weekend. Sure, my pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jason Rolf. To learn more about him and his work, you can go to variational.ai. And now I'll leave you with the quote from Robert Sapolsky, who among many things is a professor at Stanford. He says, I love science and it pains me to think that so many are terrified of the subject or feel that choosing science means you cannot also choose compassion or the arts or to be awed by nature. Science is not meant to cure us of mystery, but to reinvent and reinvigorate it. Thank you.